0: You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle.
1: Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Valchunas. Eric, you found someone, I think for your book, that we also invited to come on this week's uh, episode of Trillions. Who'd you find? Uh, This is an interesting guest. Uh, uh, Definitely
2: um, somebody who uh, some people are going to know, some people won't. But his name is Victor Hagani. And Joel, as you know, I am deep, deep in the book project, writing about Bogle and and Vanguard. And I came across- Thanks for taking the time to do the podcast. Look, for you, anything. But I was going through people to interview, and and I came across this article in the Wall Street Journal, and it said, you know, former long-term capital management, you know, now an indexer. And there's been a couple cases like this of people who go from the active world. And in long-term capital management's case, that's probably- is active and in hedge fund as you could possibly get, right? This was a famous hedge fund in the 90s that had some of the most brilliant people. Um, And we'll go over that a a little bit in a minute. But he, somebody who is now an indexer and has an advisor and basically manages money uh, using low cost, mostly Vanguard ETFs. And so I thought, okay, I, I wonder what what caused this guy to do that? So I interviewed him for my book, and I, and I thought, you know, everything he's saying was really good material for the podcast, given we talk about ETFs and some of the, his experiences, I think a lot of uh, even, you know, just regular retail investors will relate to. Um, and so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about his transition and some of the stuff he's uh, thinking about today.
1: And his firm's called Elm Partners, which we'll discuss with him. This time I'm trillion, Victor Hagani. Victor, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. So, Eric mentioned long-term capital management, and I want to talk about that. But Elm Partners, it seems like what you're doing now is long-term capital management. So, how did you go from, from
3: one universe to the other? Uh, well, I guess that name was taken, so I had to go with something with something different. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so you know the trajectory that landed me doing uh, Elm partners and you know low cost, uh, what we call dynamic index investing, you know, I started off at Solomon Brothers in the research department in 1984. I'd studied finance and econ at college. And eventually I wound up in the trading on the trading desk called the Government Arbitrage Desk run by John Merriweather. And then uh, eventually uh, we went off and set up the hedge fund LTCM. And I guess the, you know, the thread that's that's relevant here is that from when I started at Solomon, you know, through the end of LTCM, um, I never really thought much about personal investing. You know, my, my focus was on, uh, trying to generate alpha for our capital provider. So to begin with, it was Solomon Brothers, the firm, and then later on, it was all these investors in LTCM, mostly institutional investors, that would allocate, you know, a small part of their capital to any given investment like LTCM. And it was only after the, um, uh, you know, after the crash of LTCM, shortly after that, that I started to. I took a sabbatical in two thousand one after sort of the windup of LTCM and the launch of a successor uh, vehicle. And it was only then that I started to think about what to do with my own savings. And I wasn't working at that point. And uh, the first thing that I did was I looked at what people who I really respected were doing. And I saw that everybody that had a good amount of wealth was still chasing alpha or not still, but was chasing alpha in one form or another, private equity, distress, Venture deals, angel deals, hedge funds, whatever. And I, so I went and started doing that too from like 2001 until I don't know, maybe around 2005 or six. And then I just realized that that wasn't a sensible way to manage my family's uh, savings, that an individual investor is really different than an institutional investor. And so I decided that I wanted to get lower cost, more tax efficient, more diversified, long only. Totally transparent, and I was like, okay, well, now I'm really back to what I was taught when I was in college, and it led me to um, to deciding to get indexed with uh, with my family's savings, and then there was this road from there for about five years till 2011 when I decided to offer it to friends, and eventually to um, to everybody that that wants to use us um, as a low cost manager of of ETF and index fund portfolios.
1: And talk to us about what your offering is at Elm Partners. Like, what as a individual investor, what what should I expect that I couldn't get
3: on my own? So the the main the main uh, form of the offering is that um, we help you open up an account at Fidelity or Schwab, and then you put some uh, of your savings in there, and then we manage that in a portfolio of uh, of ETFs. We have two strategies. One of them is what we call global balanced. So that's a balance between risk assets, mostly equities and fixed income. And we change the weights over time as the expected return of the different asset classes is changing. I mean, real interest rates go up and down. That's one thing that's changing. And also the long-term expected return of equities is changing over time uh, as, as indicated for one thing by the uh, the earnings yield or the cyclically adjusted earnings yield of equities. And so we are rebalancing the portfolio over time based on Uh, expected returns, mostly from long-term expected returns point of view, but also we have a trend component that we marry together with that. And um, we do tax loss harvesting. We help people to average into the market if they've been in cash for a long time and they don't want to make the jump all at one time. And we also give uh, advice to people. We help people to think about lifetime spending and and how spending and and investing go together. We help people think about you know realizing the realization of taxes, um, you know at, at different times. All the different big important financial decisions that people have, we're there if they want to discuss them with us. But we just charge uh, twelve basis points is our only fee, a basis point a month. And so you know we're not like a concierge service. I mean we try to be really efficient, but. We have a um, you know relatively high minimum, so most of our investors are relatively uh, affluent, and uh, a lot of them are finance people, so financially sophisticated, and so it works for us that we can sort of help them to have a diversified, low-cost portfolio of ETFs and index funds managed for them.
1: How many clients do you have, and like how much? How much? What's your AUM? On, on their behalf?
3: So we have, uh, I think we have around uh, close to 400 clients altogether. And uh, our AUM is, uh, we haven't calculated it lately, but we think it's probably between one and a quarter and one and a half billion right now, something like that.
2: Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about, Victor, in my interview with you for my book, and I found this really interesting, and is I asked you what you thought about index funds and Vanguard and Bogle when you were at Solomon in the 80s. And I got to think the 1980s, you know, what a what a decadent time. It seems almost like thinking about that was such a far off thought. But you talked a little bit about the concept of indexing being around Solomon. I, could you go into that a little bit in t- terms of your exposure to the concept of indexing um, while you were at this massive sort of Wall Street firm?
3: Sure. So Solomon was this really interesting synthesis of, of – uh... Of academic thinking and sort of rough and tumble street smart people as well, and you know that that the idea of indexing came out of the uh, modern portfolio theory of um, you know Markowitz and Sharp and so on from the nineteen fifties and sixties, and that thread of thought also included you know people that I was working with uh, or people that I was working with the people that they had trained with. So, for instance, you know that Paul Samuelson. Uh, is somebody that Jack Bogle credits with really encouraging him to do the uh, the index uh, business and offer index funds. And uh, it was a concept that we knew about. Um, we had people coming through our firm uh, trying to get us interested in sponsoring it. And, um, you know, even the earliest uh, idea around ETFs was something that came through. I remember being in a meeting and Uh, Some guys came through and said they had this idea for basically the ETF structure. And, you know, it wasn't really something that fit with what we were doing on the arbitrage desk, but it was something that we were aware of. And that the uh, and and there was also this intersection of the academics that we worked with, that trained us, that guided us and the beginnings of uh, of um, of indexing. So, as I say, you know, Paul Samuelson's student was Bob Merton, Bob Merton's student's you know, like half a dozen of them were my partners. And Bob was a partner um, and, and worked, at, you know, consulted at Solomon, was a partner at LTCM, you know, as well as Myron. And so there was this whole, you know, legacy of it that was there.
2: Solomon Brothers, um, what was it about that place? It seems like it was almost like Seattle is to music, like just all these bands coming out of this one small place. Mike Bloomberg, our boss, came out of Solomon. Michael Lewis, long term capital. Um, what was it about that place that produced so many people like that?
3: Well, you know, I think that when I got out of college, I um, I got I, there were two job offers that I was thinking about. One was J.P. Morgan and one was Solomon. And I went to my dad and I said, what do you think I should do? Um, which one should I take? By the way, the one at Solomon is paying, um, I don't know, twenty twenty four thousand dollars. The one at J.P. Morgan is paying thirty five thousand dollars. That sounds like maybe J.P. Morgan. JP Morgan oh has god. this big Oh my
2: god First of all, hold on a second. But well, this is 85, right?
3: Yeah, 84.
2: Wow. And that was that was decent money back then, right? Oh
3: yeah, yeah, it was great. that's yeah, so crazy. And, Okay, sorry. And JP interest Morgan rates by this, the way
2: at the time were like 17%, right? Yeah.
3: And JP Morgan had role. this great training program. You know, so I was going to go there, they were going to train me for like a year, they were, I was going to move all around, etc. It was going to be this great development of human capital at Solomon Brothers. Um, you know, there was going to be no training. I was just going to hit the, I was going to go into this research department and that was, and and just start working. And my dad said to me, well, you know, if you do well, which place will you be able to do well faster? And I said, definitely, you know, it's Solomon Brothers, you know, And and, and so I took the job at Solomon and Solomon was so flat. Everybody knew everybody the senior people were just incredibly supportive of the junior people. I mean, I remember we were short on desks. And, and uh, you know, and so one day I come in and, and my boss, Bob Koprash says, well, you you know, Marty Leibowitz's secretary is out on maternity leave. You're going to have to use that desk for a while. So I was sitting in Marty Leibowitz's secretary's desk outside of his office. And, you know, people would come by and, you know, like, thought that I was the replacement uh, secretary, which was, fine. you know, can you grab some coffee for this meeting or whatever? But, you know, Marty would come out and just talk to me. And, and you know, like one night I was hanging out doing some work and he comes out and he's like looking around for somebody. And I was the only one there. And he got me involved in a really interesting project because I was the only one there sitting outside of his office. Do you remember what the project was? Yeah. Yeah. He He gave me all this data and he said, OK, you know, see this column here, you know, I want you to run some regressions over here and do these tests and whatever. So I do it all. I don't even know what the data is. And he comes in in the morning. He says, did you do it? And I said, yeah. So I give it to him. He goes into his office and he comes out smiling and he says, this is great. He says, do you know what you just did? And I was like, no, I really don't. And he said, you just calculated the duration of the stock market. And and so he he was he wrote a few papers then. That was looking at the interest rate sensitivity of the stock market, you know, by by doing these regressions and saying that, you know, at this point in time, you know, the stock market, in addition to having all the stock market risk, also looks like a five year government bond as well. Um and he wrote a bunch of things about, you know, thinking it was really thinking about the correlation between stocks and bonds. And he called it the effective duration of the stock market. Was, but you did the you did the heavy lifting. No, no. It was one night's work, though. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> It, was the, the, work. The, How about it that? was the thought and the question that was important, <laughs> not the regressions. <laughs> but, but by the way,
2: well, Joel, can, can I just digress here for a minute? And I, I told Victor this story. His story reminds me of a story that I told him that is also related to just being around when you're young and like available. Because when long term capital management um, fell and got bailed out and there was a lot of negative media attention, I was working at a PR firm. A crisis communication firm, and I just i was the guy who could use the video camera because none of the old heads could really operate a camera. So,
1: shows you how I desperate was, they were, Victor.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's true. So, one of the clients was long term capital management, and so John Merriweather and another guy, I can't remember who it was, but probably Eric, they come in on a Saturday and they're like, Hey, can you run the camera for this media training? So, I got to watch him. Get media trained, and two things I observed: one, he was not happy. Uh, this was not a; it wasn't a fun time for him. I'm sure He was. It was you know pleasant. I mean, it wasn't like a, a jerk, but he was. He was just very serious. And the second was he rolled in with a sweater vest, and this was the '90s when like everybody wore a suit all the time. And I just thought that was pretty badass. I don't know. I, he just seemed like he was over the whole suit thing, and I don't know. I I, I kind of uh, was in awe of that. But anyway, that was my experience with getting into something at a young age, just by like sort of being around.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all in one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
1: So Victor, as long as we're talking about, uh, Solomon brothers, um, you know, the thing that I, the, the book that made, made everyone, you know, understand Solomon brothers better was Liars Poker, obviously Michael Lewis's book. And, and I'm, I'm curious, what wasn't
3: in Liars Poker that should have been? Oh boy. Um, geez, that's such a good question. I, I, I think that it did, I think it did a really good job of what it was, um, you know trying to do i mean so so one thing that's really interesting with that book is i remember when it came out when it came out everybody at solomon brothers was pissed off you know really pissed off and um and then our group in particular was even you know more pissed off because it really you know wrote about john uh, having this um apocryphal hand with john goodfriend you know where it's like you know no 5 million you know i'll only i'll only play one hand for 5 million you know which didn't actually happen but you know there was a bunch of fun things that did happen and anyway um you know so like um you know uh i don't know 25 years later and and i and i was friendly with michael we uh we worked together we also were at the london school of economics both of us we shared that in common and so like 25 years later i read the book again and and i just couldn't i couldn't reconcile why I was upset about it, um, you know, back when it came out in in the 90s. I mean, I just thought it was it was so funny. It sort of caught the spirit. It was so positive on John and, you know, and and all the different people. I don't know. It was really, really funny how, uh, you know, back in the 90s, you know, like it was all about sort of privacy. And, you know, it was like an invasion of privacy. You know, Michael was there at Solomon and he was keeping notes and then he wrote this book. But, you know, with the passage of time, when I look at it, you know, I just say, well, he caught something really well. I mean, he's obviously a great, great storyteller and writer. And, you know, the the really ironic thing about it, right, is how, you know, Michael says, I wrote that book to try to warn people not to join Wall Street, you know, smart young people to do something else and not to go to Wall Street. And of course, you know, that that was probably the single biggest thing that drew uh, talented, smart people to Wall Street. So it was kind of really funny.
2: It's interesting you say that. Um, I have a one of my son's friends, his mom is in the financial industry. She's moved on, but she first was in the financial industry for about, I guess, 10, 15 years. And she said that book inspired her to take a job on Wall Street. And this is sort of like the movie Wall Street. I think Oliver Stone's like, I tried to write this as like Gordon Gekko is a bad guy and people like <laughs> wanted to be Gordon Gecko, And it's interesting how that happens. Yeah. Um, I also think the big short inspired a whole generation of top callers and skeptics that honestly have probably lost a lot of money. Um, I think there's these moments where this something's immortalized and it does attract people, perhaps um, in, a, in a way that isn't the, what was intended by the art. Um, so we're going to, I want to get to ETFs in a minute and, um, ask about the, the picks. One more thing about the old days in long-term capital management. And this is just something that I guess I'm curious about when you have a lot of chefs in the kitchen, these are very smart guys. How does it work out? Like what to invest in? Like, how is the process of an active fund like that, um, with so many smart people, or do you develop a system and the system kind of rules, and and the people just add to the system.
3: It was uh, it was a very consensus oriented approach. I think some people look back on that and and you know call that one of the problems with with LTCM. But um, you know we we tried to work together on the portfolio construction and selection, very all very closely together. It was very much a collegial sharing um consensus oriented sort of approach to investing. And, and sort of risk man, you know, we didn't really have a totally separate risk management from the portfolio management uh, function. I mean we had risk we had a risk management function, uh, but there was you know overlap in the people and and so on. And so we didn't really, you know, that we didn't really have somebody that was sort of, you know, like what you would think of as a risk manager where his only job is to be the risk manager and to say, no, 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 whatever. But those are just sort of um, red herrings, you know, in terms of what caused the failure. I think that the the way that most of us feel about it today, looking back, is that um, having a standalone pool of capital doing leveraged relative value trades is just not a great business model, um, that the better business model is that the activity that we did should be done within a large organization with lots of capital where just a small amount of the capital is being dedicated to these relative value uh, trading strategies. So you know, ironically, you know, I think it should be something that's you know uh, at at, at city, you know, where city has you know a couple billion dollars of capital doing these sorts of proprietary trading strategies within city is fine. Today, that's that's not legal, or it's it's outside of the regulatory um, remit for banks. But but I think that that activity needs to be. Uh, encased in a large pool of capital so that it can deal with the periodic shocks that it gets, Um, you know, which we've seen over time, you know, that we survived a bunch of those shocks up till 98, we did well, you know, whatever, but the 98 shock got us. And if the 98 shock didn't get us, actually, the 2008 shock was even better, uh, even bigger. And, um, you know, I think that just speaks to, you know, a standalone pool of capital relying on the street for financing, doing this one activity, I think it just doesn't, it's not a good business model. So I don't think it has to do with how we manage the risk. I think it just had to do with this activity just doesn't make a lot of sense there. And, you know, and today there's very few dedicated pools of relative value capital and the ones that, that do it, you know, that were similar to us, the ones that do it are, are doing it in a very narrow thing. Like they're doing bonds versus bond futures, you know, and it has, and it's okay. That thing has a two month, that has two months to go and then you're going to deliver the bonds or take delivery, and you know stuff like that. People are still doing standalone, but but not sort of the more expansive relative value stuff that we were doing with longer horizons.
1: I I have one other question that can kind of bring us up to to uh, present day about this, but you know, having lived through long term capital management and and what happened there, recently Archegos uh, Capital fell, um, and this was the Bill Wong implosion, uh, $20 billion that were wiped out in, in two days. And just curious as somebody who's, who's gone through, um, um, something like in our newsroom, we talked about long-term capital management as Archegos was, was happening. And what what stood out to you about Archegos
3: and what, 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 what most interested you in that? Um, what most interested me in that, um, you know, I just don't, I don't, I don't really know enough about the strategies that uh, that they were doing. I mean, I, I suppose that the thing that stands out most to me about both LTCM and this situation of Archegos is that you know when you're doing leverage strategies, um, you know, there's always this risk that that you lose a lot of money. You know, that's just the nature of being in leverage strategies, and we know. That and we've always known, you know, that that financial assets are very fat-tailed. They're not sort, you know, it's not sort of some well-behaved um, kind of uh, geometric Brownian motion sort of thing. Um, you know, it's it, that that um, there's an endogeneity. In other words, right, that um, it, it's not like a physical process where uh, it's just determined by the states that it's in. I mean, it actually is. It it has there's feedback loops and all that. So we know that about financial assets. Now, the thing about LTCM that doesn't get written about that much, but I think is actually the signal message and importance of LTCM is for me, the the biggest sort of mistake with LTCM is how much of our uh, how much of the partners like me, uh, how much of our own capital we had invested in our own fund. Now, it seemed like a great thing at the time, you know, but I had like I had probably 70 to 80 percent of my uh investable uh assets invested in our funds. And uh and actually some of that I even had leveraged, but you know, I still had 30% of my savings that wasn't in the fund, but the 70% I had in was even some of it was leveraged. And you know, I think that it's really hard to justify having that much in your own fund, especially when you also own a large part of the management company. So you know if I had 70 to 80% in the fund, but my liquid net worth was probably worth less than my ownership interest in LTCM, the management company. So really, I was sitting there with like a 90% exposure or more of my total net worth to the fund. And, you know, given the fact that we know and we, you know, we we were aware of this and we had it built in and all that, that we could lose a lot of money. We knew that we could lose 30 or 40% and basically be out of business. Like we knew that that could happen. Um, you know i I was too exposed to uh, to my business like that, and that's kind of a really big lesson from the whole thing and And now we look and hear about uh, Bill Huang and Archegos. And again, we see somebody who uh, had done really well, had a lot of wealth, and it seems like he had we don't really know, but it seems like he had most of it, a very large fraction of it, you know, being managed and exposed to this leverage and i and I think that that's just a really a really important lesson for all uh, investors and all actors out there is, is how important it is to not put, you know, I mean, it's just so trite to say it this way, you know, but um, you know, you, you know, really smart people can get blinded to this and just have too much, you know, in their own cooking. And it's like, Oh, I want to have all this skin in the game. Well, that's doesn't, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And, um, you know, I think that's a really, good lesson from LTCM in particular, you know, the Huang thing, we don't know enough about it, but LTCM, we kind of know, uh, you know, we, you know, it's, it's, it's more transparent what happened there.
2: That's interesting. Cause the skin of the game gets brought up a lot when you're evaluating active funds and they'll be like, well, if, you don't have, if they don't have skin in the game, don't invest in it. But that's sort of risen up the ranks as a criteria, but that's an interesting point you make about it. Um, I, I want to move on to the, the sort of all that is is a very unique world. Then you come down to your portfolio today. Um, it's it's a lot of Vanguard ETFs. Um, your biggest holding is VTI, which I have always considered the perfect ETF. It's probably the only one I could say is flawless because with the uh, securities lending, you kind of have perfect tracking. It's free exposure to the whole market. You just can't really beat that deal. That said there are people who worry the VTIs and the VOOs of the world, the S&P 500 ETFs, are like these giant blobs that are just growing bigger and bigger and bigger as more people say, the hell with it, I'll just index. It's a very logical decision. Um, what What are your thoughts on that bigger worry of indexing as somebody who holds these kind of e- ETFs? Um, do, do, is there some kind of a uh, risk that beta just fails for a decade or something. Uh, any, any take on that?
3: Sure. So, you know, there's lots of criticisms of, uh, you know, of market cap indexing. And um, I think that a lot of those criticisms are wide of the mark. Like one thing that you hear is, well, you know, market cap indexing is a big momentum machine because, you know, it makes people invest more in the biggest companies. Well, That's not true in a number of, from a number of perspectives, that's not true. I mean, the first thing is that once an index fund owns a certain amount of a large company, it doesn't need to buy more of it when its price goes up. It just happens, it keeps the same number of shares ownership and the value of it goes up. So it's not, that's not momentum trading. You know, when a stock goes up, you buy more of it. That's momentum trading, which an index fund isn't doing. You know, I think another argument that's very enticing on the surface, but I think is logically incorrect, is that by definition, people will say uh, a market cap weighted index fund overweights overvalued companies and underweights undervalued companies. And it's a it's a it's it's an argument which is subtly, but, you know, 100 percent logically incorrect. So, you know, think of it as like imagine that the market is composed of just two stocks. You know, one of them is. Uh, a two hundred billion dollars stock. The other one is a hundred billion dollars stock, and so you could be market cap indexed. Uh, but you know that the fair value of both of those stock, we we don't know what the fair value of both of those stocks uh, is. And so you know a priori to begin with, like the fact that one of them is a two hundred billion doesn't mean that it's more likely to be overvalued versus undervalued. So it might be. 20 billion overvalued or 20 billion undervalued, that the fact that it's at 200 billion doesn't tell us a priori that it's more likely to be over or undervalued. And so I think that the logic in that argument of, well, uh, market cap weighted index makes you long the overvalued stocks more, you know, is is, is, is not correct, unless you have some way of uh, figuring out what fair value is. So like, if you, if you have some way of beating the market, then market cap index, you know, it's better to beat the market than to do market cap indexing. But you can't say that you're agnostic to, um, to beat, you know, to, uh, to generating alpha through valuing companies and just say that there's an inherent flaw in market cap indexing. No, I think that that argument's, um, in, you know, incorrect. The, the size of indexing, you know, we're nowhere close to the size of indexing being a problem in terms of, uh, you know, liquidity and, and the amount of active managers out there Um, You know, I mean, there's a bunch of other arguments. Another argument is, oh, when when somebody moves money into an index fund, um, you know, they're taking it away from active managers and that's making, you know, that's causing the cheap stocks to get cheaper and the rich ones to get richer. Well, active managers taken collectively own the market cap index, you know, that put them all together. So so for one thing, if you're just sort of randomly reducing. So if somebody has a bunch of active managers and he's selling those to then buy an index fund. Well, he's selling the index to buy the index and just getting lower fees. That's one thing that could happen. Or maybe he's like, oh, I'm going to sell my active managers that have done really poorly. Well, you know, so now we're saying that active managers, you know, that, that the reduction of uh, assets allocated to active managers who have done poorly is making the market less efficient. I mean, that seems that's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? It's like, OK, the guys who have done really poorly are actually the really good ones.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ.
1: how do you talk to your clients about alpha? I mean, this is, you know, when you were at long term capital management, you're you're also you have clients now who, you know, are are wealthy and involved in the financial industry. And like, alpha is the thing that everybody, you know, it is it is the the pinnacle of everything. So how do you how do you talk to clients about that now?
3: We say to them, when when you've given up on alpha, come to us, (laughs) you know, that alpha, alpha is expensive. Alpha is very difficult to it, you know maybe difficult or near impossible to identify based on historical data because you'll never have enough stationary data to identify it and so you know when you've thought about it and you've decided that um, you know I want I want diversification I want cost efficiency I want tax efficiency and I'm kind of willing to give up on chasing alpha then you know that's a re- now now you should decide do you kind of want to do it yourself do you want some help Um you know, do you want to free yourself up? Or you know, do you want to put some of your money you know, into something that's less alpha oriented? Now we're still dynamic, but our dynamic is not chasing alpha. The dynamic is just trying to have the appropriate portfolio for the appropriate attractiveness of different investments at each point in time. So we're not trying to generate alpha. We're just trying to have you know, sensible portfolio mixes depending on the investment environment for, for our investors.
2: I'm looking at this portfolio. It's a very, it's a robo-esque portfolio. And I say that as a compliment. It's got very basic, cheap ETFs, little iShares, little Vanguard, maybe a little spider here and there. It's just very much like what a Betterment would use. Your 12 basis points and you do planning. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is part of what I'm researching also is the sort of vanguard effect that's going to hit the advisory world. And you don't hear about that as much, but why did you choose 12? I mean, that is really low. It's almost like you didn't need to. And are you open to uh, outside investors or do you have a cutoff with how much money you can invest? Can you just talk a little bit about the process of that pricing and the future plans for the advisory business?
3: Sure. so when when I started this at the end of 2011, um, you know, the first investors were all a bunch of friends of mine. and um, and you know, I was just I thought that low cost is really important. It's like this one thing that we can control. Um, you know, as Benjamin Franklin said,, um, you know uh, a, a penny saved is worth two pennies earned. You know, some people think that he said a penny saved is a penny earned, but actually he said a penny saved, is two pennies earned, and what he meant by that, I think, uh, you know, was really was was really insightful on on his part. Of course, um, you know, is that a penny in the bank that you've saved is risk free. Uh, you need to earn two pennies in a risky way to be equal to one penny that's risk free, and 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 actually, you know, that's modern finance actually tells us that's correct. So, so anyway, you know, I was focused on costs and I was like, well, it's my friends. What fee, if, if one of the, what, if one of my friends that was going to invest with us, if the, if the roles were reversed, what would I think is like a fee that just wouldn't bother me at all? And I would say, that's great. And that was where the 12 came from. And, you know, it could have been 13 or 11, but 12, there's 12 months in the year. So a basis point a month, that's, that's where it came from. And, you know, it seemed super, super low back in 2011. You know, it still is low today, but, you know, the the world is coming to us for sure. Um, you know, at the moment, uh, we have this cutoff of, you know, roughly half a million dollars of, uh, of assets in the family, you know, in the family group to start with us. But, you know, as we get uh, more efficient and build more technology, we want to bring that minimum down, you know, and make it available to anybody that wants to come with us. But, you know, right now, we can't really be efficient for somebody that wants to give us $5,000. We can't be efficient for them. You know, we can't do as much as we want to do for them. But, you know, our our investors are all over the place. You know, we've got, I don't know, a 100 million dollar investor and we've got, you know, people that have given us $300,000 and we waived the 500 for them. You know, we have young people, you know, mostly it's people that are that kind of look like me in terms of age and experience and all that, but you know, we have people in their twenties. We have people later in life, um, and you know, we just want to keep on helping more people and 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 using technology to do it. You know, I think that's the key thing. Like, we couldn't do this business twenty years ago for so many reasons. We couldn't do it twenty years ago, but today, you know, it's it's you know, all of the different pieces that we need are there. You know, all this different kind of outsourcing, Fidelity and Schwab being terrific places to have assets. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So.
2: Um, and just real quick, final question is: uh, When you look at the portfolio, it it has a sixty forty ish vibe to it, but there's also some other things in there that you can tell you're you're mixing it up a little bit. You got some gold in there, um, and uh, some different uh, international exposures, uh, some different targeted bond exposures. How active are you? Do you have like a generic sixty forty for the people who don't like want any of your of activeness? Or how do you do that in terms of the tact? How tactical to get?
3: So our the baseline portfolio that we have, which is the portfolio that we start with before we uh, overweight or underweight different buckets, you know that that is a little bit more granular than just owning a global MSCI uh, equity index and an aggregate bond index. You know, like for sixty five thirty five. So you know we have a five percent bucket for REITs in our. In our separately managed account programs, we actually don't have gold, but we do have gold in our in this private fund that we started with before. But anyway, um, so, you know, we have REITs in there. We have a small bucket for munis in there. We have a bucket for TIPS and nominal bonds and corporate bonds. So we kind of have broken things up like that. And, you know, and we get granular in terms of regional equity markets. So we have, you know, US, we have Europe, we have developed Asia, EM, and well, then you need Canada to fill it all out. Um And so, you know, that's our baseline. And then, uh, you know, we overweight or underweight based on a long-term expected return metric. Uh, Mostly that's uh, the cyclically adjusted earnings yield and then a trend metric that we put together with that. And, um, yeah, I mean, if somebody says, look, you know, I just want you to manage a static portfolio for me. Well, first of all, we have this all equity version, which is less dynamic because it's always in equities all the time. It's just we're changing how much U.S. versus EM versus Europe. Um, but we would also do a static portfolio for somebody, but we would try to, you know, we would try to explain to them that we think, you know, that just makes less sense than doing something that's responsive to the investment environment. So we don't have any static portfolios, even though we would be willing to do that for people if they wanted it. You know, I think that we would tend to encourage them to do it on their own. And, and um, you know, because it's if you're going to be static, if you're always going to be a 65-35 and you want to do that, then you know, we'll do it for you and tax loss harvest and all that, no problem. But, you know, you might want to do it yourself too. And, um, you know, because that's a pretty simple thing to, to do without needing to put much time into it.
1: How, so how much trading are you doing, Victor?
3: So we rebalance the uh, our SMA portfolios once a week. Uh, we rebalance them like a quarter of the way to where we ultimately would want to be so we don't generate too much turnover. Um, and, you know, we're we've built these systems that, you know, try to do the minimum number of trades, you know, they're tax aware. So, you know, if you're going to realize a short term gain, you don't do the trade normally or whatever. So, you know, we, we try to dampen down the trading that you would get if it was just like, Oh, here's this dynamic target. It's moving around, just move to it all the time. You know, we're kind of moving, trying to, trying to keep up with it, but in a, in a low turnover, low, you know, tax efficient manner. So,
1: so Victor, I got to ask you a question that we ask everyone at the end of uh, trillions, which is, what is your favorite ETF
3: ticker? Oh, my favorite ETF ticker. Yeah, I guess it's. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess it's VOO. You know the uh, the you know the Vanguard um, S and P five hundred sort of with that nuance of uh, you know of the Roman digits sort of thing. I think that's my favorite.
2: <laughs> Good job knowing that, by the way. That is a, I, I thought you didn't know it. And I was ready to like just drop that cool factoid, but you did. <laughs> and that's amazing. How, how did you, did you just figure that out at face value? Because I didn't know it until someone told me at Vanguard. I was like, oh, that. I, now I get it.
3: I, I might've read it in one of your articles, Eric. I don't know where I learned it, but I did not, <laughs> I did not figure that out myself. I, I read it or heard it somewhere. I did not, it didn't hit me.
2: It's the most hidden cool ticker of all time. Like, because only you have to, someone has to tell you about it for you to know about it, I think.
3: Yes, yeah. That's what happened with me, for sure.
1: (laughs) Victor, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions.
3: Yeah, sure thing. Been great. Thanks for listening to Trillions.
1: Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Wherever else you like to listen, we'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show, he's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find more about Elm Funds at ElmFunds.com. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye.